This is the AI Health Podcast, where we explore the ways in which AI will transform healthcare, biotech, and medicine through conversations with entrepreneurs, investors, and scientists. Hey, I'm your co-host Pranav Rajwarkar. And I'm Adrielle Saporta. And you're listening to the AI Health Podcast. Today, I am beyond excited to be talking to none other than Dr. Vijay Pandey, whose background at the intersection of AI and health is really just extraordinary. He's worn so many hats over the course of his career. He spent many years as a professor of chemistry, structural biology, and computer science at Stanford, and was also the director of the university's biophysics program. I remember taking a class with him on startup engineering back when I was a freshman at Stanford. And I know that at Stanford, the Pandey Lab was always doing incredibly important research on computational methods and their application to medicine and biology. Yeah, so the Pandey Lab's work has resulted in over 300 publications, two patents, and two novel drug candidates. But Vijay has also had a lot of experience as an entrepreneur. In his teens, he was the first employee at a video game startup. And during his time at Stanford, he co-founded Globavir Biosciences, which aimed to discover cures for dengue fever and Ebola. And now, of course, Vijay is a general partner at Andreessen Horowitz, a venture capital firm that's also known as A16Z. Because spelling Andreessen Horowitz is hard, and there are 16 letters between the A in Andreessen and the Z in Horowitz. (laughs) Right, exactly. So Vijay also founded A16Z's BioFund, which leads the firm's investments at the cross-section of biology and computer science. So I thought that today, before we launch into the interview, we could spend some time talking about one of Vijay's projects while he was at Stanford called Folding at Home. Let's do it. What should we know about Folding at Home? Okay, so all the way back in 2000, Vijay founded the Folding at Home distributed computing project out of the Pondé Lab. And how it works is that thousands of volunteers sign up to install this software on their personal computers, and then Folding at Home uses the idle processing resources of those computers for disease research. So it'll use that compute to simulate protein folding, computational drug design, and other types of molecular dynamics. And so anyone can sign up to do this right? Like you, me, any of our listeners. So you could almost think of folding at home as leveraging the power of many, many smaller computers to create one giant supercomputer. Is that right? Exactly. So if you install the software, it will just run in the background and use spare GPU power or graphics processing power to run various calculations. And your computer will be one of the hundreds of thousands of other computers running these calculations to help do disease research and essentially help solve the protein folding problem. And maybe it's worth taking a step back and briefly explaining what the protein folding problem is and why we would need something like folding at home to help solve it. Yeah, that's a great call. Okay, so take it away. What is the protein folding problem? So the protein folding problem is this famous grand challenge that the scientific community has been chipping away at for over 50 years. Proteins are the building blocks of life. They're like these little machines inside every cell in our bodies, and we rely on them to do basically everything to keep us alive and healthy. They underpin every biological process in our bodies. And you can think of a protein as being like a long string made up of amino acids that are strung together in various patterns like beads on a necklace. So this long necklace then twists and folds itself up into a super complicated tangle. And this is what's called protein folding. And each protein's shape determines its specific function 
or job in your body. So, for example, if a protein has a shape like the letter T, maybe that protein functions as an antibody that binds to viruses to help protect us. Or if the protein shape is more globular, maybe it's used to transport small molecules throughout our body. Exactly. So, an axiom of molecular biology is structure is function. And if you think about it, there's almost a limitless number of ways that a string of amino acids can fold itself up, and it turns out that it's really, really hard for us to figure out the exact 3D shape of proteins. For biologists, figuring out the exact shape of a protein can take years or even decades of experimentation. So we know about over 200 million proteins, but we only know the exact 3D shape of a fraction of these. And so the protein folding problem essentially asks: Can we predict a protein's shape just by looking at that protein's amino acid sequence? And am I right that the idea here is that if we know a protein's shape, then we can better understand the human body, but also better understand various diseases and how to develop new drugs to fight those diseases? Exactly. Okay. Cool. So that's the protein folding problem. So, because it's so hard to determine a protein structure in the lab, in the 80s and 90s, people started using computers to simulate protein folding. But even doing that is expensive and takes enormous amounts of computing resources. And so, folding at home initiated what's essentially this massive global crowdsourcing effort. The original goal of folding at home was to better understand how proteins fold, but also how that folding process sometimes goes wrong. Causing all kinds of diseases, so folding at home was able to apply their findings to medical research in Alzheimer's disease, Parkinson's, many forms of cancer, malaria, diabetes. I mean, the list goes on and on. And in the last year, the number of volunteers for folding at home skyrocketed with COVID nineteen because folding at home has been helping scientists understand the structure of the SARS CoV two virus that causes COVID nineteen. Again, I am so excited to chat with Vijay. But before we do, I just wanted to mention that A16Z investments may be discussed in this conversation, but none of the following content should be taken as investment advice. See a16z.com/disclosures for more important information. You've been a professor at Stanford for many, many years now. And then in 2014, joined Andreessen Horowitz. Could you tell us a little bit about how you decided to make this move towards investing, and how it's been straddling academia and business? So first off, thank you so much for having me on the podcast. It's always fun to chat about this topic. So you know, maybe it's actually natural to start a little bit about my background. So I was actually in my first startup when I was 15 years old. A company called Naughty Dog Software, a computer game company. EA was our studio, and it was a great education. And ever since then, I think I always wanted to try to connect that back into my life. And so, while I was a graduate student and then a postdoc at uh, UC Berkeley, I had a actually a strong desire to get into the startup ecosystem. And being at Stanford was a natural sort of first step for that. And actually, you know, the funny thing is, I get to Stanford, and like literally within a month. Investors from Sandhill call me up to ask me for diligence. I go on advisory boards, scientific advisory boards, eventually boards of companies. Companies spin out of my lab, and I've been a co-founder of some of those. And you know, you very quickly become part of that ecosystem. And so that I was enjoying quite a bit. And when I first got to Stanford, especially, it felt like this 
limitless resource. But after maybe about 10-ish years, I started to see things that I couldn't do. And also one of the biggest trends was that a lot of the stuff that we worked on in my lab, especially the folding home distributed computing project, where you know, we were doing really large scale, the largest scale computation that you could imagine doing, as that technology started to become more mature, it really became clear that a lot of the exciting stuff was going to be on the company side, not on the academic side. So around 2014, I started looking for different opportunities and actually had connections into Andreessen Horwitz. And so joined there first as a consultant, as a so-called professor in residence, and then later uh, came on full-time in 2015 to launch the BioFund there. And you know now it's like five years plus, things have been rolling since. I want to ask you a little more about the BioFund. So you founded the A16Z's BioFund, uh, which leads the firm's investments at the cross-section of biology and computer science. Can you talk a little bit about the founding story behind the BioFund? Yeah, especially in those earlier years before we started it, I think what we were starting to see was really a new type of startup. And you know, this was both stuff that I saw at Stanford, as well as I think what people were seeing at A16Z, the startups that were basically tech companies at their heart, but in biopharma and healthcare. Mark puts it really well that he talks about seeing those pitches and, you know, Mark's one of the smartest people I've ever met. And so he can like over the weekend learn about like the hotel business and sort of prep himself for Airbnb or learn about, you know, taxi business, prep himself for Lyft. But he was realizing that he can't give himself a PhD in immunology over the weekend or he can't give himself a full in-depth understanding of the complexities of the healthcare system over the weekend. And that what we really needed, especially to handle this intersection between tech and biopharma, tech and healthcare, were domain experts. And so I came on board as the founding general partner there. And one of my key missions has been to put together a team that reflects that. And so we have people that have deep expertise in biopharma and therapeutics and diagnostics, as well as healthcare delivery, but with a tech uh, mindset. And I think that's really was the sort of inspiration for starting the fund. And, you know, five years ago, that was a little heretical. Actually, it sounds crazy now, but just even saying that tech would revolutionize biopharma or would revolutionize healthcare was something very controversial. It was like sort of fighting talk. And now I don't think that's controversial at all. It's not an if. It's not even as much a when. It's how and by whom. That's really interesting to hear you say, because I do feel like, especially now with COVID, I have a lot of friends who are investors who want to now get into healthcare and bio and are a little worried that they don't have the background that they would need to be able to do that. Do you think that to be a good investor in the space, you need to have some understanding of the science behind the technology to be successful? It does vary a bit by stage. So maybe at the very earliest stages, you're basically judging based on team. And those are sort of getting a sense of the person. And some of that could be done, I think, without a deep technical expertise. But I think as you go on, it gets harder. I had an acquaintance who was a traditional biotech investor, and he was asking about company A, which I invested in versus company B. And he said, look, these are both AI and drug design, like smart people. How can you tell that this is one to invest in and this one isn't? And a lot of this is just about all about the little details. And, it, you know, like anything, like if, if you're a football aficionado, you can tell the difference between, you know, Super Bowl caliber team and a good team. Uh, but if you've never seen football, it's just all, you know, just professional football players all around. Sometimes these things are nuanced, but if you have experience in that area, if you have that technical background, it's kind of almost obvious sometimes. And I think that's true independent of the technical area. 
it's hard to be a generalist though. So it sounds like for the most part, for many years, you had bio funds and you had tech funds. And it's really only in the last maybe five-ish years that we've started to see a lot of traditional venture funds start to sort of merge those two, those fields together. And I'm curious how you think about the risk profile, the life cycle, and the financial returns of bio investments versus traditional software or consumer technology investments more broadly. When you think about these spaces, there's a lot of different types of bioinvestments that you could do. And some of them today will look like traditional bioinvestments, that there'll be maybe if it's a drug company, there'll be a single asset and that you're investing in that asset and we see how that asset does. What I think has actually regained in popularity now on the biotech side, which has been key to our investment thesis and key to sort of a tech mindset, is whether there's a platform and whether that platform can create something. And in my mind, especially whether that platform involves some sort of engineering. And when we say tech, you know, what do we really mean in the end? You could say, you can often think it's software, but I think it's really can be generalized beyond that. It's really a sense of engineering. And we like software because it's easy to engineer. If you had to write code the way you discover drugs, like, you know, you'd sort of find it somewhere and then you test it out, that would not be very engineering-like. It would not be, actually, ironically, not be very tech-like. It's not the software per se. It's the fact that it's very engineerable. And as bio becomes more and more engineerable, those areas in bio take on tech-like properties that you can improve then 10%, 20% a year over year. And that leads to exponential growth akin to Moore's law. And, you know, a great example actually just recently is maybe Moderna with its vaccine. The fact that you could basically design it in two days and then, you know, obviously has to go through trials, but that's something that would normally be unheard of. And that also is, I think, another example of tech-like approach. So when we talk about investing in these spaces, I think it's important to realize that bio is not a monolithic space. And some parts of it are engineerable, and those are the ones that we're going after, whether we're engineering diagnostics or therapeutics or the healthcare system itself. Uh, some parts aren't, and some parts might be more discovery-based, and those are things that we not, would not invest in. And so the parts, though, that have this potential for exponential growth have the potential for tech-like outcomes. You mentioned the term platform. This word means different things to different communities. Could you specify what platform means in this context? Yeah, that's a great point. And, and because sometimes platform means a bunch of smart people or an idea or an approach. In my mind, a platform is something that is more akin to a set of machine learning algorithms or some a complete engineering approach or something that is almost like a machine that can be engineered that would in time, you know, in comes ideas, outcomes, drugs, essentially. That's a vast oversimplification, but it's the idea that it's, you know, more than just some smart people. It, it's something that has the ability to create a product. Maybe an interesting example is a company called Freenome, which is using machine learning to develop early stage cancer diagnostics. And, you know, they're going to market with colorectal cancer, CRC diagnostic. And you might think, you know, what they've done is they've made this diagnostic, but really what they've done is that they've built a platform for creating diagnostic tests with CRC being the first one. But in principle, they could uh, train not on just CRC data, but train machine learning on, in principle, any type of cancer. And what could come out of it from that platform would be a test for that cancer. And the powerful thing about once you can create a platform like that is that now they can think about not sort of what you know, would be interesting to do, but they can ask on the back end what would be reimbursable, what can help the most number of people, what can work within the healthcare system, all of those complicated things. 
And I think that's also sort of one of the powerful things about a platform. You have almost like an industrial machine that can make lots of things. And now the question is, what should we be making? I imagine that for a platform, there are different levels of abstraction that one can think about. If we decide to go more and more general, we can end up with everything uh, can be cast as a input-output problem and you apply some kind of a deep learning algorithm. At the highest level of abstraction, perhaps we end up with something like a PyTorch or a TensorFlow, which is the most general purpose. But imagine that's very different from the kinds of products that companies are focusing on. So how do you think about the right level of abstraction? When do we say, okay, now is a system that is complete, that is a product that has sufficient domain knowledge engineered into it such that it's not possible for anyone to just work at the level at which TensorFlow says, okay, here's a supervised learning problem, here's an X, here's a Y, optimize this function. Yeah, you know, I think in the end, tools like TensorFlow are just that. And really this platform is a combination between understanding the biology, having the data, and having the go-to-market. And you could have all the tools you want, but if you didn't have the data, you wouldn't be able to do any training. You could have all the tools and the training, but if you didn't have the right go-to-market, no one would buy it or you wouldn't be able to sort of make the most out of it. And so really it's the combination of all three. Uh, the part that I think has been really exciting is now that these AI tools are so general that the first two rel are relatively straightforward. The tools part is actually straightforward. The data part can be a challenge, but is accessible. Now the question is, what's the smartest go to market? And so what I'm seeing is some of the sharpest entrepreneurs are coming in as machine learning or AI experts. And I'm really trying to get them, and especially for people listening to podcasts, if you're one of those type of people, I would strongly encourage you to try to take all that passion and all that deep technical expertise and try to become a go-to-market expert. Because it's only understanding what would be the biggest payoff for this technology will you be able to take this machine and do something really powerful and powerful in terms of helping people and powerful in terms of building a huge company. That sounds great. So if I understand right, it's the combination of technology, data, and go-to-market that have all got to be in play for this all to sort of work as one coherent whole system. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, the irony is that, especially being a sort of product person, as I've always been, it's very easy to fall in love with product and technology. Like, oh my God, this can do all these amazing things. But if the go-to-market isn't there, it can be heartbreaking. Because you can have these brilliant people to create a beautiful product, but no one wants to buy it. And so working backwards from that go-to-market, yeah, I think is where I'd encourage people to think about, especially if you have a technology that has that sense of generality that could do so many things. Let's figure out then what's the most impactful thing we could do. When I think about investing in deep tech, in my mind, the earlier you invest, the more science and tech risk that you take on from a product perspective. But then the later that you invest, the more maybe regulatory and go-to-market risk that you take on. And I'm curious how you think about that and, and if you see A16Z as being better positioned sort of earlier or later relative to, to other funds, do you guys invest across the whole spectrum? We basically do invest across the whole spectrum. I mean, we can write very early checks and we've written checks right before IPO. We're thinking about that whole spectrum and have different sort of signals depending on the situation for what we're looking to de-risk. 
one point there is that we've been talking so much about platforms. One of the really interesting things, and this actually connects to one of the questions that you guys sent earlier is, you know, how AI is going to change this is that, you know, the cost of healthcare is frankly, this massive national crisis that we've been having for some time, such a huge fraction of GDP. And, you know, it's on track to become eventually 25%, 30%, you know, 50%, uh, eventually 100% of GDP. Something's got to give. And one of the interesting things about artificial intelligence in healthcare more broadly is that it allows things that used to be dominated by services, like things that people have to do, now get turned into goods, something that can be industrialized and, and a computer could do. So like an example, maybe from a previous industrial revolution would be something like a shoe. Now we, we always think about a shoe as a good, like we buy shoes, factories make shoes, a shoe's a thing, right? But you know, 200 years ago, a shoe wasn't really a thing. A shoe was the product of a service where a cobbler came and they measured your foot and they talked to you about what shoe you want and you got this bespoke shoe made for you. And you can imagine that's a, probably a better shoe probably fits better, or at least originally, maybe compared to the early factories, maybe the bespoke one was better. But in time, factories just allow for making this so much cheaper, so much faster, so much better, so much iteratively improvement year over year, that if you can do this alchemy of changing something from a service to a good, you can change the cost curve. And so what we're seeing, I think, in AI and healthcare is that gradually some of the things that were services, and maybe right now at first on the back end, but eventually throughout, can be turned from services into goods. And therefore, the cost can be massively decreased. And it goes from basically on the sort of healthcare cost curve, which is exponentially increasing, to Moore's law, which is exponentially decreasing. Still early days, but I think that is, I think, the ray of hope for massive change in this industry. I find this really fascinating because I sometimes think that on the spectrum of, you know, software companies on one end and services companies on the other hand, that AI maybe sometimes sits closer to the services companies than we wish it did. And I'm, I'm sort of curious how you think about scaling AI-based businesses. You know, if, if AI models have become somewhat commoditized recently, is data really what creates a moat for companies nowadays? Yeah. Well, then there's two things that you raised. One is just sort of uh, in the spectrum between maybe something that's a very simple algorithm, which is a high margin software company, something on the other extreme, which is like low margin service, like a consulting company, is AI basically in the middle. And you could argue AI requires training, which might be expensive, both in computer time and maybe in human time. And so therefore, it's just the middle. I think in some cases it does. Where it gets really interesting is when AI training can be built in for free. Like uh, you look at like Tesla cars, everyone driving is basically doing AI training there. In healthcare, you can actually have bots or follow what people are doing and learn from people. If the labeling and training can be done essentially for free, then you can shift this cost curve to look much more like the software curve than the services curve. And I think that's going to be key part of it. In terms of moats, I think you're right that I think data, especially in healthcare where data is really hard to get, will be a moat. So like pictures of cats on the internet, not hard to get, right? I mean, that's basically what the internet is. Billions of cat pictures, easy human data, information about clinical trials or, or healthcare records, those are not sort of easily accessible on the internet. That's hard to get, that's proprietary data. Those are things that can create moats in principle. Got it. So in your first point, you're saying 
that being able to sort of train automatically and getting kind of a, a sort of flywheel effect going with your business model is critical. And that also sounds like sort of collecting proprietary data, right? If you're Tesla and you're getting a lot yep. of data from your customers because they're using your product, then you know you start to collect that data and it's a sort of positive flywheel effect that's happening. Yeah, absolutely. Are there some maybe examples of investments that you've made that have sort of that flywheel effect moat that you'd be able to share with us? Yeah, I think a very natural example is a company called Alpha Health. So Alpha is in the space where I think most people dread and where so much expense comes, which is in healthcare billing. And so what Alpha does is take the work that has to be done, sort of very grinded out, tedious work by humans, and it learns from the humans that are doing it and eventually starts to do more and more. Originally, it can't do everything a person can do, but maybe it can do 80%, the 90%, the 95%, the 99%, and maybe some edge cases will all be, always be given to a person. But it basically allows the least interesting, most boring tasks to be given off to the computer and therefore done much faster and much cheaper without sort of human error, which is hard to avoid and so on. That's one area in the back office. I think there's tons of other areas. We talked about diagnostics with a company like Freenome. Also a lot of excitement about things that are sort of more traditional examples of, let's say, using AI and drug design, AI to try to bring drugs to market faster, cheaper, better. I'm curious to ask you a follow-up on the AI for drug design. There are a lot of companies that have been started up in the space recently that have different approaches to tackling the AI for drug development, discovery, and different phases of that. What are specific theses you have about the technologies that will progress to a point at which five or 10 years from now, we'll look back and think, of course, that was the technology that was going to work. Yeah, yeah. So this is a, a very profound question. And when you think about the act of drug design, you have the early stages where you have to figure out what's the target. You have to understand the biology. And as pipelines are drying up, finding interesting targets is getting harder and harder. And here it gets to kind of a, another really interesting insight about AI is that normally you would think finding targets is this creative bespoke process of discovery. It's something that happens serendipitously. But instead, I think what we're seeing is AI can industrialize this process of discovery, can take in huge amounts of experimental data, let's say driven by robots, analyze that, design new experiments to run and iterate in an active learning-like process. Perhaps one of the most profound things about this is that biologists themselves who may be skeptical about this would say, well, that's impossible because biology is just so complicated. Like, you know, maybe that could happen in other areas, but biology is just too complicated. But I think there's a certain degree of hubris there because if biology is really so amazingly complicated, why do we think that a human brain can understand it? And there's a certain point where actually ironically, machine learning and AI may be the way to tackle the true complexities of biology. And in fact, typically we tend to oversimplify the problems and oversimplify our explanations of things because our brains can't get into the true complexity of biology. Computers don't have that problem. And so what we're seeing now is the models and predictive nature of biological models of things can have much higher accuracy than a, sort of a human model. But you know, at the, the question is um, at the cost of interpretability, possibly, because it is just such a complicated model. But a, a, as you know, we can always make trade-offs. Then we can create a model that is more interpretable, but less accurate. And ironically, that's the model for human beings to sort of double check the computer and say, oh, okay, I can understand this. This seems reasonable. So that alone is a big area and an area where 
industrializing discovery is I think such a game change and such a fundamental different way of thinking about things and even just a cultural shift. But that's just the beginning. I'm curious to ask a little bit about the human checking. So maybe I'll use an analogy for this. So in chess, the computers are now so much better than the humans that it's known that the AI can make moves, which the humans won't be able to explain why that was the right move over even what the grandmasters are thinking. How similar or dissimilar are we in the drug design space where we might have this loop you described of AI deciding what the next set of experiments should be, which generates data that goes back into an AI model. If a biologist came into the picture and they said, this doesn't seem right, this doesn't seem promising, right now, where are we at in terms of being able to trust the biologist versus being able to trust the AI? Yeah, that is, I think, the hallmark of sort of where we are. And I think we're right at the sort of tipping point. I think we're at the point now, though, where the AI-driven things are fast enough to do that we can kind of see where it goes. And the proof is in the pudding in the end. I don't think we're at quite the point where it's as mysterious as it has been in games. And I think one of the things that you're alluding to is especially deep learning playing Go, where you probably remember like the Go experts that were talking about the game talked about it almost looked like an alien intelligence was playing in ways that they never seen before. And I think that is the potential that we're looking for here. It's probably still a bit early. With that said, I think we are starting to see anecdotal examples of that. Maybe over the next five years is I think when we're going to start to make that change. One thing to think about is maybe to make analogies or comparisons to other big cultural shifts. And I think one of my favorite examples is comparing to Wall Street that maybe during maybe 10 or 20 years from the 2000s to the 2020s, 2000, if you said computers are gonna replace the best traders, people would say that's, oh, that's ridiculous. These guys are paid millions of dollars because they are geniuses at this. This calculator is never gonna beat them. And now it's like, well, why would you ever put that in a human being's hands? Like, how could a human being be expected to keep up against a computer? And it's been a, not just a technological shift, but it's very much a cultural shift as well. On a broader level, I'm sort of curious, what are the areas at the intersection of AI and bio that most excite you? So you've talked about drug discovery. If you had to pick your sort of next top two or three, what would you say that you're most pumped to hear about in the next few years? Yeah. Well, and even within drug discovery, we talked about the targeted medication. The back end is also really interesting, predicting clinical trials. And one of the things that I was always very jealous about for like my friends that were at places like Google, where they could maybe make 5% increase in accuracy for something like some filter or image filter or ad filter. And maybe that's like $100 million because there's just all the money that's sloshing around there. Uh, whereas in AI for drug design at the early stages, if you're 5% better at coming up with a lead, that's nice, but that's not going to sort of change anyone's world. You have to sort of make a push of AUC from like 0.6 to 0.9 or something like that. That's when people are getting excited. On the other hand, for clinical trials, if you could even speed up a clinical trial for a blockbuster by one month, that could be $100 million. If you could pick, maybe often pharma maybe can only do five trials. If you could pick the right five out of the 10 candidates, that could be billions of dollars. And even if you just get one, one more right, you know, it could be billions of dollars. And so predicting clinical trials is a huge area and a really interesting one, really complicated one, where I think there's a lot of hope and not a lot of effort yet that's starting to bubble up. So that's one area. We could talk about a whole other areas. One of the other areas that I think is really interesting is to really rethink 
what is healthcare. And so much of healthcare is treating you after you get sick. And so often people refer to that as sick care. It's very interesting to think, what if you could take actions to improve your health so you never get sick? Whether that be, you know, lifestyle things to make sure you don't get type 2 diabetes or heart disease or even cancer. There's a variety of things that are actionable and often in the bucket referred to as social determinants. And in fact, I don't know if you saw this, there was this article in the New England Journal of Medicine that had this really compelling graph. They had a pie chart of the causes of death. And 10% of them, they would attribute to things that the healthcare system could go after. Like drugs could help that, surgery could help that, all that stuff. Some large fraction was genetics. Like, you know, some people will be fated to have more or less difficult times. That was like 40%. Another 40% was social determinants. Like, is your spouse smoking? Are you elderly and you just got discharged from the hospital, but you're living in Florida in the summer and you don't have an air conditioner? These social determinants are things that in principle are outside the sick care system, but very much actionable. The problem is that how do we know who to help and how to help? Because we don't have infinite money. We don't have infinite time. But this is a question of data science to figure out the problems and logistics to know who to get to what to, almost like Amazon, like logistics. But these are great problems for tech. And I think what we're starting to see is people thinking about applying these areas as well. I'd love to go back to the second point that you made on predicting clinical trials. There are lots of different ways that people are thinking about this, one of them being deciding who should be enrolled in a clinical trial. Another idea has been to understand what the biomarkers are that are most associated with having a positive outcome. I'm curious of the many different approaches that people are taking, what do you think would be uh, one or two that you have a particularly bullish bet on? Yeah. So, and and you're right, we could break this down into lots of different things. We could talk about patient recruitment. One of the amazing things is just like, how do you even get on a clinical trial? And there are a lot of patients that unfortunately are dying, dying of, let's say, a given cancer. And if their doctor doesn't know about the trial or they can't get matched in, that logistical problem is the difference between probably life or death. So there's a lot of different problems along that line. And I think each one of them are very amenable to sort of data science and tech right now. And we're seeing different examples of it. Back to our early part of the discussion, it's almost not even a question of where we can make improvements, especially since small improvements are very material. It's kind of who's going to pay for it, how's this going to get rolled up, what the good market's going to look like. And it gets puts us back into that bucket. And so now this becomes an interesting question. Like, let me put it this way. Let's say you could predict the outcome of clinical trials. All you need is a really good training set, but where does that come from? You probably can't call up your friends at every single pharmaceutical company and get their proprietary data and then aggregate it and then make some predictions. So what would be the go-to-market there? There's a bunch of different interesting ideas going on, but it could be that that go-to-market part is going to be now really the limiting part. And frankly, that often is the case in healthcare. Because you could have super smart people, let's say, in a technical domain, but if they don't appreciate the challenges and the nuances and the complexity of the maze that is healthcare, they might not figure out how to apply that technology. And I think that's going to be the biggest problem, at least at the moment. Speaking of that maze that is healthcare, who do you tend to see are the early adopters of AI technology in bio? Who do you go after first? And I know I know this will change based on the domain, but... I'm wondering whether there are sort of general patterns that you're seeing as an investor. 
if we go through sort of all usual suspects, diagnostics has been a very natural first place. And I think the funny thing is that diagnostics typically was viewed as a relatively sleepy place to do investments and to build companies because diagnostics would be like the PSA test for prostate cancer. The PSA test, you know, there was some biological discovery. Turns out the PSA test is 50% accurate. That's better than no test, but maybe not a lot better. And a lot of people know about that biological discovery. So you can, a lot of people can create tests. So there's not going to be much margin for that. And then it's just about volume. Um, that's not very interesting. I think what's happening now though, is that diagnostics companies are really being transformed in this new generation into data companies where the diagnostic is the means for gathering the data. So we don't think about Google as like a web crawling company. You know, it's a data company as well. And web crawling is just the means by which it gets its data. But that's probably the least interesting part. And so I think diagnostics are going to be a way to get a whole bunch of interesting data. First, maybe for cancer or for other areas, but eventually maybe 10, 20 years from now. And, you know, 20 year arc, I think is going to be particularly exciting given the technology we're talking about. It could be that like, I don't know, monthly yearly, daily, you get a diagnostic done. It does a sort of web crawl of the key parts of your health that you need to worry about that data gets fed in and interesting things come. That's, I think, the beginning of what we're seeing right now. And so AI in that space is very natural. AI and drug design is also something where maybe five years ago, there was a lot of skepticism and now there's a lot of excitement. And you can quantify that excitement just even basically in dollars in terms of deals that are getting done big upfronts, big backends. I think a lot of excitement, that technology, especially since I think pharma is realizing that's going to be hard for them to build it in-house. Kind of like GM realized that's going to be hard to build self-driving car technology internally. They bought Cruise. I think pharma is realizing that as an incumbent, startups are a natural place to have that type of innovative technology. So they're going there. And then, you know, we can talk about diagnostics, therapeutics, but healthcare delivery is the final sort of big bucket where we're seeing huge places where there's opportunities to take that data, do interesting things, do things that are actionable. Going back very quickly to the idea of diagnostic companies as sort of collecting data as they offer their service, do you have in mind as an investor how you want them ultimately to monetize that data? Are there sort of the go-to three ways that you could potentially monetize that data down the line? Yeah, I, I think that's part of the go-to-market question. And I think there's all these different ways you could do it. I think one of the biggest questions is you may have this grand image of where you could get to and how that could be, let's say, a $100 billion company, but you, know, you got to get there and the company has to survive along the way. And so presumably there's intermediate products. And the question is who pays for those intermediate products? Ideally, they're reimbursable. And for reimbursement, what does that mean? And what would it take to get reimbursed? And how much are they going to pay for it? It starts off as sci-fi AI technology and then gets right into the weeds of reimbursement and healthcare systems and CMS and all that stuff. But that's actually a really critical sort of part of this to be thinking about it. Once you're rolling, though, it's interesting to think that if you're doing millions of tests a year, that's a lot of data. And that's a lot of data, both to improve your own test, which is unheard of in diagnostics that you could do better as time goes on. But also it's a lot of data for unsupervised learning in other areas or for maybe your next test. So getting that flywheel going and thinking about how to build a company such that basically people can pay you to build the data a moat would be ideal. 
One thing that this is going back a little bit to what we were speaking about earlier, but when you're investing in seed stage companies, I imagine that in bio, it can be hard to create sort of the traditional MVP that you're used to, you're used to seeing entrepreneurs create to sort of prove concepts. And I'm wondering if that's something that you look for or require, or how do you do that when you have hospitals or physicians who may be gun shy about using a product that hasn't been totally proven out yet? Yeah, you'd be surprised, actually. There have been a lot of times where we've had essentially MVP at very early stages. And maybe P, maybe it's not a product. So maybe it's a minimal viable technology where it was an example. So in the case of Freenome, we were able to actually give them prospective tests where they had an early cancer diagnostic. And we actually gave them samples unlabeled and asked them to say whether it was cancer, no cancer, and what stage, and they got 100% right. So that was a very strong sort of signal for us. In other cases, companies like Genesis Therapeutics, where they're coming out of Stanford, and they have a technology that's very strong. In that case, it's a technology that I'm associated with, so I'm also very familiar with it, but they can do prospective tests to show how strong their technology is. So in that case, Evan had a collaboration with Merck that ran prospective tests with data sets. Perspective tests are always my favorite by far. Any machine learning engineer knows it's really easy to fool yourself with retrospective tests and that you can't fake the perspective ones. So having something like that at least is a good first sort of sense that there is something really there to the technology. In other cases, for something like healthcare delivery, you can start to see that there would be something that is more akin to an MVP. And you know, the fun thing is like any sort of tech company, it often doesn't take that much to get a bunch of maybe one or two engineers. Maybe your co-founder is a 10X engineer and you can get together the, the basics relatively quickly such that the technology is there. Now the question is like, can you get the deals and start selling? And speaking of getting the deals, I'm curious if your academic network allows you to source investment opportunities that maybe other funds wouldn't be able to. Yeah, you know, I think everyone has their different networks. And I think the fun thing about being in the Bay Area now, like, and this is where I'm going to do an old man, get off my lawn kind of comment, but like, uh, <laughs> you know, I've been in the Bay Area since 96. So, and the really fun thing about the Bay Area and the sort of the network effect that is the Bay Area is that, you know, I've lived in Menlo Park and Los Altos and Woodside now, you know, your, your kids, friends, parents are in tech like just everybody's there. It doesn't take too much to build that network. And so the academic network is very strong. But I think the fun thing about living in the Bay Area is that just socially and otherwise, and if you're just meeting interesting people doing interesting things, you build sort of the, the whole network as well. I'm curious how you think about launching companies out of academia. Are there different considerations that one needs to keep in mind? Is it a preferred path to actually translating the technology? Yeah. So it's a very tricky question because I think the upside is to be able to really push the technology and develop it and maybe even run these perspective tests where you're not under the time urgency that you might be in a startup where someone else like NIH might be funding this, this might be more basic research or might be even a side project. And then you're waiting for that moment where you feel like you've got the signal to say, oh, like this is something really special. And, and I think that does make sense uh, up to a point. And so there are many companies that we founded where the, the founders were in academia and then they moved over. There's a couple different models for that too. One is where it's maybe just the grad student, sort of the junior person sort of pushing it all themselves. Another version is that maybe the professor is actively involved 
And in some cases, the professor is so actively involved that they decide to basically close their lab down. And so Sri Kasuri from Octant did that. He was a sort of superstar young founder, a young professor, and closed his lab at UCLA to found Octant. And there are a few other such people in our portfolio. So I think it's something where you know, people go to academia to really do big things, to do things that aren't incremental. And I think often when you get to a certain point where your technology has gotten that far, you realize to continue that mission, that journey, that passion, the only way to do that is to shift over into the company. And so that is, I think, definitely a tried and true approach. I think the one challenge is that that's great for technology, often where you end up being maybe less familiar with is the go-to-market side. And so often what we try to do is to help people find that other founder or sort of think about who would be that other sort of voice in that team to be able to help them understand that side of it. That's fascinating. I was just about to make the comment that I've heard that the difference between academia and industry is academia is about demonstrating possibility and industry about demonstrating profitability. And I like that difference. I want to ask about patient health data, and and you'd mentioned earlier how difficult it is to get access to that data. And I know that you're invested in a company called Citizen. I think you're maybe even sitting on the board of of that company. Yep, that's right. And so Citizen is a platform that helps patients securely collect and manage their personal health data. And I'm just kind of curious what your general thoughts are on patient health data in the United States. And I know you have big companies like Epic and Cerner that are controlling massive amounts of this data and sort of, how do you think about companies navigating those sort of Goliaths that exist already there? And is there a regulation that you would love to see passed that would suddenly make a lot of your portfolio companies' lives a lot easier? This is a very general question, but I'm mostly just curious what your thoughts are on data in general. Yeah, no, this is getting right at it because we talked about the power of AI. We talked about the importance of data the data sitting there, how do you get at it? And I think one of the sort of twists on the story is that HIPAA, the regulations about data, sound like they're restrictive. But you know, one of those P's in HIPAA is portability. Originally, the idea was that this was meant to allow patients to be able to sort of move their data around. And so I think once you realize that patients are the ones who own their data, as it should be, now you have a new mechanism for gathering data. And I think Citizen was founded by Neil Sethi, uh, very much inspired by actually a huge tragedy that his sister died of breast cancer and that he spent basically a large part of the last year, year and a half of her life going from doctor to doctor with her. And he's created the tool that would have empowered her, frankly, as far as he understands it, to quite possibly have saved her life because of you know, she legally had all this data, but, you know, it would come to her in CD-ROMs and like who even has a device to read that and so on. So by empowering patients to realize that they're the ones who own the data and that they're the ones who can do something with it and what can they do with it? Well, they can make sure that all their physicians have it, but then they can also do something where they can use that data to help other people. And so you think about like what folding at home was where people realize that one computer is not that much, but if you aggregate them together, you can build the most powerful supercomputer in the world. And actually folding home recently has regained that title during COVID. One patient's data is helpful to you and the ability to spread it and send it to doctors is useful for you, but then aggregate it in with research has that potential also where you can actually play a key part in changing the world. 
And so I think once we start realizing that this deserves to be in the patient's hands and we let patients make those choices, that's where the game really changes. And where now I think as long as we can do what's in the patient's best interest, patients will be very aligned with us. Do you ever get any pushback about security for that data and making sure that it's kept secure and private? Yeah, I think like any other data, there's a long list of encryption and cryptography and various things that one can do. That part, I think, is less of a concern, but I think it's in the category of things like your bank data, your taxes, all those things. But I think those are things that as long as one is thoughtful, that we can handle it thoughtfully. Yeah, it is funny because I do feel like sometimes people use the security and privacy of health data as an excuse to not make it more portable and shareable. And yes. That's unfortunate because there's a lot of great stuff that we could do with it. Absolutely. What are some changes that COVID's enabled in the space of healthcare, but also specifically in bio, where there's been a lot of changes that have gone on behind the scenes, some of which are related to AI, but some of which are will be related to AI in the future? Yeah. I think one of the biggest changes for COVID is that Often just culturally, medicine's been pretty conservative, I think, for thoughtful reasons, that nobody wants to sort of adopt something overly rapidly and cause harm to patients. And, and there's a real logic there. On the other hand, and this is almost like a trolley problem-like argument, on the other hand, sometimes inaction can be as deadly or harmful to patients. And like in the trolley car problem, people tend to be okay with the inaction causing harm rather than the action causing harm. COVID has forced us to realize like we don't have this choice. We have to get these things done right now. We have to find some way out of this. We have to have action. We have to move. And that I think has been a critical cultural shift. And I think you look at, let's say, just telemedicine. There's been a huge sort of shift towards telemedicine and especially lowering barriers, let's say state-to-state uh, -state barriers in telemedicine that didn't necessarily, I think, really have to be there. I don't think they were necessarily protecting very much. And COVID was the motivation to realize like, okay, it's time to move on from that. And so I think that's really what it is, is that cultural shift that medicine actually and healthcare can move fast and you can move fast and heal things. It's something that is a fundamental difference in mindset. And often people associate tech with moving fast and especially breaking things in sort of the original uh, formulation. And that's why people maybe even were nervous about tech and healthcare. But I think COVID has really shown that we can move fast and actually improve things. And that is the real power of bringing tech into this. And again, whether we're talking about AI or data science or logistics or any of it. Vijay, thank you so much for uh, coming on the show and sharing your thoughts with us. This has been incredibly useful. Yeah, thank you so much. It's been so much fun. And that's all, folks. A big thank you to Dr. Vijay Pandey for talking to us today. And thank you for listening. We're your hosts, Pranav and Adriel. And until next time, stay safe and stay healthy. The AI Health Podcast is produced and edited by Oishi Banerjee. Music by Ethan A. Chi. If you like what you just heard, let a friend know. Subscribe to the show and give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, follow us on Spotify, or connect with us on Twitter at AI Health Podcast.